Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. You're invited. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by John Levy. John is a behavioral scientist best known for his work in influence, human connection, and decision-making. More than a decade ago, John founded the Influencers Dinner, a secret dining experience for industry leaders ranging from Nobel laureates, Olympians, celebrities, and executives to artists and musicians. Guests cook dinner together, but can't discuss their career or give their last name. And once seated to eat, they reveal who they are. John's second book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, will be released on May 11th, and link in the description. In it, he demonstrates the importance of human connection, trust, and community to accomplishing what's most important to us. We dig into John's journey as an author and behavioral scientist. Our conversation explores some of the key concepts from his new book, You're Invited, and ways that we might improve connection through trust and community. John shares the surprising impact our social networks have on our lives. He also shares some intriguing concepts from behavioral science, including the IKEA effect and the peak end rule. We discuss the powerful story of Daryl Davis and how, through the power of invitation, Daryl convinced over 200 members to leave the KKK over a 30-year period. It was a pleasure having John join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you could do me a favor, if you enjoy the podcast, please give it a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. John, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I'd love to. Uh, so my name is John Levy. I'm a human behavioral scientist. And what I'm probably best known for is being really geeky. I mean, like really geeky. So uh, I grew up incredibly unpopular, like in computers and technology in like the 80s and 90s before it was like cool to like tech. And eventually I thought, oh, maybe I could make some friends if I understood how people behaved. And so I started looking at other people's research mostly. And eventually I got pulled in by a neuroscientist to do actual, you know, proper uh, scientific peer-reviewed research. And uh, my work led me to look at how people connect, build trust, and really develop a sense of belonging. And so about uh, 12 years ago, I was curious how to connect influential people, develop a model, and I created the most absurd thing you could imagine. So I, uh, I invite people to my house. I then, uh, they're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. These are complete strangers. I then instruct them to make me a dinner together as a group, like this communal activity. And when we sit down, they play a game to guess who everybody there is. And they find out that they're sitting with a eight-time Olympic medalist, a Nobel laureate, an editor-in-chief of a popular magazine, occasionally a member of royalty. We've even had like 
the voice of the dog from who let the dogs out. They won a Grammy for barking on an album, right? Like just ridiculous human beings who are all far more important than me uh, and far more accomplished. And uh, the big joke is that I'll never be remembered for anything uh, other than getting important people to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors and thank me for it. So uh, yeah, I'm a geek who uh, has accomplished eating a ver- 227 terrible meals cooked by people uh, and building uh, what I really did was build a community of interesting and extraordinary people. I, um, I just, I love, I love the story and um, uh, kind kind of jealous uh, mm-hmm. at, at just the, the way you were able to pull this off. And I, and I, I don't mean that in, in a negative way. Oh, no, really, no, I'm, it, I'm, so- I'm, I'm jealous of myself sometimes. <laughs> the uh, it's, it sounds much more glorious than it is. Like, let me just be completely honest. I've, uh, the Nobel laureates don't really know how to cook. It's not like these meals are good. We had a famous journalist and author come to one of these and she said, I was expecting a phenomenal meal in decent company. I got the exact opposite. So like, let, let's be honest here. Uh, it's, it's, I consider myself very clever for having figured this out. And uh, it's all built on human behavioral science. But it's not like, you know, if you have a few dollars, you'll have a better burrito at Chipotle than you could have at my house. It's, there's no question about that. But as you mentioned in your TED Talk, you, you did have Regina Spector make guacamole for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, we've, I've had a ton of really kind of amusing moments. One of my favorites, uh, we had this woman, I, I've shared this story a few times, but we had this woman who, a brilliant woman. She's, uh, she's there talking to a gentleman uh, who I'm not going to describe because it'll make sense in a moment, but there, there's nothing like you look at him, you wouldn't think anything in particular, right? Like you wouldn't say, oh, that person is clearly an X, Y, or whatever. And she's talking about her division three basketball career and how good she was. And then we're done cooking. We're sitting down and everybody's guessing what this guy does professionally. And then people say, you're a businessman, you know, a musician, so on and so forth. And then he says, well, my full name is Isaiah Thomas. I'm a 12-time NBA all-star, NBA champion, so on and so forth. At the time, he was like the general manager for the New York Liberty. Uh, And the woman literally picks up her napkin, hides hides behind it, and goes, Isaiah Thomas? I was bragging about my division three basketball career to Isaiah Thomas. Like it's, you know, you get these moments that are just so human and ridiculous, but like, you know, what can you do? It's two over 2000 people have participated. So. So you, and you've, uh, you've been uh, digging into behavioral science, extending what you've done with the dinners. Mm -hmm. You have a new book coming out called you're invited. And Oh yeah. uh, it's uh according to my jewish mother it's incredible i'm i think it's very good but like <laughs> my jewish mother says it's absolutely amazing and you, you should all you listeners according to her should buy several copies right now right yeah you know, please listen listen to john's mom i agree with your mother uh oh. i i i thought it was great uh are you okay if I, I have a few questions on some of the some of the topics oh please let's dive in let's have some fun with this so uh, one of the things that I, I loved was um, 
you're from a behavioral science perspective. Uh, what one of the things you frame is that there are three, uh, really three things that are, are you know, for what's important to us, bringing together kind of the the notion of uh, influence, trust, and community. Can you talk to me how like how how you came to those three elements together? Well, sure. So you know, I've been looking at influence since. 2008, 2009, like before Instagram and all that, right? Before that was a job, right? Yeah, yeah. Like before you, you, you could be taking photos of avocado toast in a bikini and that's like, <laughs> oh, you'll get paid for that? I mean, who knew that was an option? So the, when you really look at influence, by definition, it's the ability to have an impact on a person or an outcome. And if I'm going to have an impact on most outcomes or a, a person, First of all, they would have to be connected to me in some way, right? Unless I'm like, you know, pushing somebody or I don't even know what, right? Like we'd have to have some kind of connection um, because it's really hard to influence somebody if they don't know you exist. The second is uh, there would have to be some level of trust, specifically within the area that you're trying to influence them, right? So clearly you know how to run a podcast. I very much trust you in that sense. If I need my accounting done, I'm probably going to somebody else, right? Like it, trust is both, there's a general level of it and there's probably like a contextual or specific level. And uh, so if I'm completely not trusted, it's going to be very hard to impact the people I'm connected to. And it turns out that when we have a shared sense of belonging or a sense of community, uh, it seems to impact things on an exponential level. And here are a few just like quick examples. If you look at women who are going through cancer treatment, it turns out that there's a multiple to the survival rate when they're part of a community. When you look at the greatest predictors of human longevity, it's not meditating every day and, you know, doing a veggie cleanse or whatever, like, you know, the all these things that we think are really hip and fun. It's number two is social, uh, sorry, is close social ties. And number one is social integration. You're part of the community or you have a sense of belonging. Uh, and if you look at, there's research by Paul J. Zach that looked at oxytocin levels and found that you can kind of track a company's stock value, employee sick days and profitability, all from the level of oxytocin, that moral molecule that gets released when we have these pro-social interactions. And so uh, what kind of became clear is that human beings really need to belong. And, uh, and when we have a sense of belonging or, and trust and we're connected to each other, we have a really big impact on one another. And so it turns out that influence, although it seems like a kind of cold word, is actually a really warm experience. Yeah, thank you. That and I and I really appreciate you putting that out there because that was that was a a frame that as as I was looking at the at the book and when you were talking about influence, right? It does seem like maybe cold or devious. Yeah, then, right. But then your presentation is it honestly was really heartwarming for me and looking at ways that we can can build community that we can. Uh, tackle really complex problems uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, that's, that's where I was looking at, at the, the elements of uh, community and also 
trust and how do how do we get there? And I loved one of the I guess backing up a, a second is one of the things I love about behavioral science is there are a lot of counterintuitive elements to it. <laughs> yeah. And you know that Dan Ariely, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure yeah. of interviewing him. Uh, his company, I believe, is called the Hindsight Institute. Uh, and he's, he's this famous behavioral economist, wrote several books. But that in hindsight, everything seems obvious. But like when you're in the moment trying to figure it out, it's completely unclear because human beings are so irrational. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and uh, on that kind of irrationality front, um, you know, one of the things that that uh, if you if you don't mind digging into this one a little bit, oh sure, I, I really liked that you said basically, uh, if you want to gain influence with somebody, ask them for a favor; they'll yeah. like you more. Where like my my Midwestern upbringing oh, it is, makes you uncomfortable. Eh? Yeah, don't I, yeah. no, don't ask. Them. They're going to think you're needy. <laughs> so yeah, like my family's from Israel. Uh, some some just to put some context into it. Uh, people sometimes hear that I've assembled all these folk, and they think, oh, he must come from like wealthy family or like you know all that. My father did fine. He was not. We're not like millionaires by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but he, uh, he, we were immigrants, right? Like my father finished, I don't think he finished grade school. Uh, my mom went to some music academy, uh, and my brother was the first one to go to college in my family. So it, it's, uh, what I describe in the book is, and this is something I really care about is that if I were to repeat what Elon Musk does, I would not become Elon Musk, right? Or if I repeat what Oprah did, I wouldn't become the next Oprah. And the reason is that what had them accomplish what they accomplished is that they did extraordinary things in a specific time with a specific skill set. What I wanted to understand was what's reproducible. What can the general average human being do that will work for all human beings, right? And what's clear is the most universal thing is our ability to connect because we wouldn't survived, we wouldn't have survived this long as a species if we were an individualistic animal. But it's the fact that we come together that lets us survive and succeed. And so the problem is that we have this general view that like, some people are like, oh, I don't need anybody's help. I can do it alone. I want full credit for stuff. Fine. That's If that's what you want, you get to live your life the way you want to. But that's not really what has people succeed. Bill Gates didn't create all of Microsoft himself. Right? Right. Uh, and so the other general misconception is, okay, if I want to connect with people, I should network. But we hate networking. <laughs> Like it's miserable. It's painful. Like when you hear the word networking, what do you think? I, I think of really awkward uh, pseudo business yeah. events. Yeah. I literally like I cringe. <laughs> what we don't cringe about is making friends. Right. Because that's natural to us. The key then is to figure out what will have people want to be friends. And <laughs> the weirdest thing is, this is so counterintuitive and you pointed to it. The 
the problem is that we think we need to win people over. We need to take them out to like expensive corporate dinners. And then you're stuck there at some corporate dinner, hating the conversation that you're in, feeling obligated to be polite. Or we throw parties and then give people swag, swag bags. Yeah. And then they just toss them out, devaluing the relationship. Gifting people doesn't really work. It can under one condition, which is, let's say I'm at a flea market. I find like this awesome antique map of Iowa, right? And I send it to you and you're like, yeah. oh my God, John really cares about me. He, he like took a risk and he got me something just for me, right? Right. It tends not to scale well. There are companies that do it, do it well, but it's, it's rare. Uh, but the exact opposite actually works which uh, in some places they call it the Ben Franklin effect, some places they call it the Ikea effect, which is this idea that we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it. And it turns out that anything we put effort into, we care about disproportionately. And so my objective isn't to have you, Matt, uh, like me because I sent you a gift or whatever it is, it's to get you just to do a little bit of effort so that you care about me more and for me to do a bunch of effort so I care about you more. Ideally at the same time if I can, which is why at my dinners we cook together. But, and this is what I keep telling people, whatever that activity is, it could be like a workout rather than drinks, right? So I would rather go take a walk with somebody than go for cocktails. I'd rather take an art class with them than uh, go to a really loud restaurant and barely hear them. I, the, the fact that the activity exists functions as a social catalyst that will bond us more than a conversation. Now, there are those times when people are so charismatic and you just hit it off that you could literally meet them anywhere and it'll be fine. But for the most part, human beings need the activity. Thank you. Uh, so one of the things that struck me a couple times in reading your book was uh, almost a couple pieces of advice that I would hear from my my grandmother. Uh, and, oh, yeah. And, and one was that uh, I remember her always saying, you're judged by the company you keep. And yeah. your, your work and your framing here shows the importance of the people that we're around and the positive or negative, not just maybe how others would judge us, I think my grandma's concern, but mm -hmm. deep down what it might mean for either our, our, our mental health, our physical health, our happiness. Do you mind talking about that a little bit and that kind of almost a oh, network sure. effect? So, you know, there's a, I, I don't even know which kind of like personal development guru popularized this idea that it's your five closest friends that, uh, that define your life. You're, you are the, what is it? The average of your five closest friends. Yeah. It turns out apparently that that's an understatement. Uh, so this kind of research was done in a bunch of different ways. I think the most famous study was by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. They took 30 some odd years of data. I think it was in a town and they looked at weight gain and weight loss. They were curious about the obesity epidemic. They were curious, does it spread from person to person like coronavirus? Or is it a percentage of the population like, I don't know, uh, Alzheimer's? You don't get Alzheimer's because you 
shake hands with somebody who has Alzheimer's. That would be counterintuitive, at least to the best of our knowledge, maybe. Right. Um, and what they found was startling, that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Now, what's even more interesting, your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance, and their friends have a 5% increased chance. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not like, this isn't a judgment, like you shouldn't yeah. have friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just simply that it turns out that every kind of behavior that they track from smoking to voting to whatever uh, spread from person to person and had some kind of relationship like that. Now, there was also examples. I think it was done by somebody at MIT where they looked at the Nike run clubs. Like if you... If you ran an extra mile, the people connected to you online would run an extra like 0.5 or 0.6. I don't remember the exact numbers. Uh, and that's kind of crazy, but it also makes sense because, you know, when you have friends who are like, oh, I'm going to leave LA. Great. Where are you going? Austin. And then you start seeing like all of their friends being like, I should go to Austin too, because these things wouldn't even appear on your radar unless somebody said it to you. Right. So. Whatever the exact percentages are, probably have a lot of factors ranging from how influential the person is in their social circle to whatever. But it, it also means that if you really value something, you know, I, I used to, I remember this so well in my 20s, I would set an alarm thinking like, oh, the right thing to do would be to wake up at five o'clock in the morning, go work out, do a full day. And I'd hit snooze like eight times and I'd be exhausted because it woke me up and I wouldn't get a good workout in and like, you know, or I'd miss the workout completely. I'd spend the entire day beating myself up for not living up to this kind of like idealized version of what life should be like. Now, just for all of you listeners, there's no research has shown to the best of my knowledge that there's no benefit to waking up tired. <laughs> <laughs> the, if, in fact, if you exercise when you're fully rested, you probably get a better workout. Like there's all these new uh, points of knowledge that we've gained since. But I realized that maybe if instead of trying to beat up, trying to set workouts at unreasonable times and beating myself up for not doing it, if I had friends who exercise consistently who are athletes, then maybe it would just be part of my habit. And here's the perfect example. I have a friend, David. David is a kind of like extreme mountaineer. He's climbed Everest twice, once oxygen unaided. Uh, we were in a like kind of spa-like environment. You know, everybody's wearing masks, all that. And, uh, and we're talking and I'm preparing to go to Antarctica to do a 10 minute zero degree swim. And and so he says, oh, we have a 50 degree bath here. Let's do a dip. And so I do 20 minutes in this water, which is like, you know, everybody else was doing five at most. You know, he did 10 himself. I was there for 20. I was freezing after, of course. Uh, but then he's like, oh, there's another place in downtown Manhattan that has a 40 degree pool. Let's go do it. And so like all of a sudden I'm getting like psyched up by this extreme athlete. This is a guy who can run a marathon in two and a half hours, right? 
And but like that would not exist in my world if I wasn't friends with a guy like that. Right. This is a guy who literally that earlier that day ran a marathon just for the hell of it. Right. So <laughs> but like without people like that in my life, it would never occur to me to do these things that frankly I probably wouldn't enjoy very much. But so the, for me, it became about how do I curate the people around me the way that a great museum curator would pick the art on the walls, right? Well, at this point in my life, I need to be to relax more and figure out how to be more mindful. Okay, I'm going to see if I can spend more time with this friend of mine. Not like abandoned friends, but just which relationships am I going to focus based on what's really important to me and what I value right now? Right. And here's the important thing about that. When your relationships in, exist as a community, they know each other, then if you end up spending more time with some and not others, it's not like you've abandoned people. There's still like a connection that exists and they don't feel like you've let them go. Right? I, my biggest issue is that I love people and I want to spend time with everybody. Right. Uh, but sometimes I have big projects like writing my book where I'm hiding for a while and then you know, I go and spend time with crazy people who want to sit in ice baths. So I want to want to ask you about the ice bath uh, based on what I know of you and your and, and what I've read is there's got to be a strong element of trust that that David's not going to have you do something that would put your body at risk. Right. There's oh, there's a stretching a stretching aspect, but I'm almost feeling like when he says, let's let's go to the next place, too. It's not you're 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 already trusting. <laughs> I think in that case. I'm the one that would put him in more risk. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, one thing I did was I hired a Wim Hof breathing instructor. So uh, between the two of us, I'm actually the one that's trained more for cold. Okay. Uh, so I think that he'd have to have more trust in me that I'll okay. get, him, get him through it. Uh, the, the thing is a guy like that, I think is very, there's a very clear difference between pain and discomfort when you reach um, like, levels of expertise like that. Yeah. Um, and when you're younger, I feel like I didn't understand the difference and I injured myself a lot, right? There's a discomfort, like I'm in plank for a while, it's uncomfortable. And then there's pain, like I'm doing damage to my body. So, yeah, I, um, so thinking about some of my close friends, we all ran cross country in high mm -hmm. school and mm -hmm. our, uh, our cross country coach was, he was a phenomenal runner, uh, but to put things into perspective, he was also a, a Vietnam Marine. And oh, yeah. uh, so there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, being mentally tough, push through the pain, those types of things. And you know, looking back, a few, a few of my runner, like not knowing the difference where uh, you, you just thought it was mental weakness when your body was actually telling you there's there's something at risk you need to change what you're doing or modify yeah. this and some lo some long term damage uh but still the experience of of running for coach wallen outweighs that uh but and for the I don't think coach it, wallen would be allowed to really, coach high schoolers these days <laughs> so i i had a similar experience in high school i had the most amazing uh physical education um uh, person in high school. He was an Olympic medalist in, I believe, judo. Uh, he's six foot, who knows how many, like, he was a massive guy. Uh, Yugoslavian, I think, is 
name is Radomir Kovacevic. And we would have this gym class, which was known as Radomir's Quirkcraft. It was occasionally written up in like, you know, crazy, like ESPN, things like, you know, just stuff that, or maybe Sports Illustrated, whatever it was, because so many Olympic hopefuls had come through there. And, uh, and it was just brutal will training. Like, I mean, clearly the exercises had a purpose, but it was like log passing while you're running, like all this kind of stuff when you're 16 years old. It was great. But there's this really funny thing from a behavioral standpoint called uh, synthesized happiness. And uh, the way synthesized happiness, sometimes people like to call it like type two happiness or type two fun. Uh, so there's fun at the moment, right? Like fun at the moment is you're playing a game with friends and you're enjoying yourself. You're laughing, you're at a comedy club, whatever. In the moment, you would rate your enjoyment very high. And then there's type two fun, which is in the moment, you're probably miserable, but in retrospect, you remember it really fondly. Uh, and that's what's kind of weird about the human brain is that we will literally synthesize our, our memory of an experience as very positive, even if it wasn't. And uh, part of it is what's called the peak end rule, that we don't remember the duration of pleasure or pain. We remember kind of the peaks of experiences and how they end. Uh, so like if you, I, I don't know if you're married or not, but if just for the sake of example, yeah. if you go on a date, it's the most amazing date you've ever been on, it's three hours in, and just as you're about to lean in for the kiss, the person says the most awful thing you've ever heard. <laughs> Would you say it was a good date or bad date? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk away and say it was a bad date. Yeah. So three hours of perfection, three seconds of something awful. We remember it as awful because of the peak and rule, right? The end was so intense that it, it uh, covered the entire rest of the experience. Um, and similarly, you know, I look back at those experiences of those workouts so fondly, right? Uh, but let's be honest, they were brutal. Like, and that's exactly what like a 16-year-old boy wants at the time, right? Right. Yeah, I've thought of, I've thought about that uh, as, as you were describing that. And then also some of the shared experiences that we have with um, early in my career, I worked for an internet startup. The hours were crazy. Some of the projects, the deadlines were absurd. And yet now when some of us get together and swap stories, we're not, we're not complaining about the hours. We're not, it was like, mm -hmm. was, wasn't that cool what we got to do or still remembering like, you know, laughing at how just absurd some of the, the situations were. Yeah. And it's, but when we were in it, sometimes it felt painful. Like if you would, if you would like interview me 20 years ago in the middle of some of these projects and now it's like, it's, it's mostly laughter and Hey, wasn't that cool what we pulled off? So it's kind of funny because a lot of vacations are actually like that, which is that um, if you probably measure people's enjoyment moment by moment at Disney, they're mostly standing online. Well, you'll be like a five out of 10 at best. But if you then evaluate the experience as a whole, they'll be like, it was a nine. <laughs> like, well, was it really? Who knows? Right. And that's okay. I mean, that's not a bad thing because I'd much rather remember my life as positive than not.
So I want to ask you a little bit about your your journey. So we talked earlier, you uh, described yourself kind of as a, as, as a geek who was into technology before technology was cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then the way I was hearing it was you're kind of interested in understanding how people tick. But how did you how did you come to behavioral science as a as a discipline or hmm. where, where did you say, ah, that's that's where I want to spend or invest my time? So I, I when I was at NYU, I was studying computer science, math and economics. So there was some of that. Right. It was just at the time that Kahneman was uh, won the Nobel Prize in in economics for uh, prospect theory, which is like essentially how ridiculous human beings are. Um, and, uh, but that's not really what hit it off. Uh, although I was always really interested in research, what really kicked it off in a much more significant way was I got hired at Rodale, the company that owns men's health, women's health, runner's world. Uh, I, they used to exist. Now everything got sold uh, to Hearst. Um, but at the time they had a research team of librarians that would, uh, literally you could pick any topic, send it to them and they would find you the latest research on it. And that was amazing. I would, I was part of a, I led digital strategy for their in-house agency and we'd get clients like Nissan or, you know, some weight loss company or whatever come to us. And they'd say, what would be your recommended strategy? I'd pull all the research on it. And based on the latest studies, I would say, hey, this is basically what's going to be the best bet to work. I developed everything around it. And then eventually I was invited to actually do research myself. And I was like, oh, this is pretty wild. Like, this is great. Let's ask some fun questions. So last year, I think it was, oh, no, it's not even last year because of COVID. Uh, I, me and my lab partner did what I think is the largest study in history on dating. We looked at 421 million potential matches and found weird things like if you two went to the same NCAA conference when you were in college, you're significantly more likely to date. Uh, if you have the same initials, you're 11.3% more likely to date. If you're both iPhone users, you're like 11% more likely to date. If you are, uh, what's, I mean, like anything you could imagine, essentially, the more similar you are, the more likely you are to connect with each other, with one exception. And I was not expecting this. And that is that um, I always thought introverts would date introverts and extroverts would date extroverts. The problem is that introverts never start conversations with each other. And so uh, you need at least one extrovert. And if they're two, oh my God, gangbusters, like they are <laughs> dating a ton. Uh, so introverts might do better with introverts. I don't know, but they just don't talk. So it's hard to, <laughs> hard to get them to date. Um, yeah, opposites do not attract at all. That's a total kind of myth. So uh, is it almost we're we're validating ourselves and what we see in others? What what do you think is is the 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 need for that similarity? So I I talk about this in You're Invited quite a bit, that from a survival standpoint, uh 
if something is similar to us, it's probably safe. And uh, the more we're exposed to something, uh, the more we tend to like it and trust it on average. Right? There are always exceptions. Like if you eat the same meal every single day, <laughs> eventually hate it. Uh, the issue is that the thing that we're exposed to the most is us, which is why if initials are similar or the same, we're more likely to date because it's implicit egotism. Um, so the big question in life isn't so much why does this happen, but how do we get past it? Because the people who are a real benefit to us in general aren't the people who are just like us. I mean, homogeneous groups are really easy, right? You're all going to get along. You're not going to argue very much. You're going to hold similar views. But that's also not very interesting, and it's really hard to figure out if you're wrong about something if everybody holds the same perspective. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of one of the things. Uh, so, my day job is that I, I work in kind of the innovation and uh, mm. brand strategy and human centered design space, and I also uh, I teach class at the University of Iowa uh, in the College of Business and leading innovation and. Mm. That's one of the things that I try to share with the student is the importance of diverse teams and cognitive diversity when it comes to problem solving and when it comes to uh, innovation and multiple perspectives. But yeah, to your to your point is like maybe from a, an early uh, you know tension standpoint, it's easier when it's a lot of people like us. But you're not going to be that innovative because you you share oh, yeah. a similar worldview, so you can't see. Uh, it, it's harder to see something from a customer perspective, especially if the customer isn't you. Uh, so, yeah, that's it, it's it's an interesting dynamic about where how how do we? It's one of the things I'm really interested in is how do we help people uh, bring their authentic self to work? How mm -hmm. do we help promote that? And uh, and then you know with the like kind of the notion of psychological safety uh, and then. We, we tend to learn when a little bit more when we're stretched. So the safety and the personal, but then like the, the stretching as a, as a team is something that I'm playing with, but I can't quite articulate it very well, but that's where I'm trying to find that, that sweet spot of interpersonal relationships and diversity with a home, not a homogeneous team, but a high performing team. Yeah. It, it's tough. I, can I ask a favor? I'm just going yeah. to uh, relocate my, yeah. Getting all comfy here. There we go. Bam. Uh, sorry, we can continue. Thank no, you. that's that's great. So, um, actually, I wanted to uh, just check in with. So, did you grow up in New York City? Oh yeah, I grew up uh, on the Upper West Side uh, of New York, and then summers in Israel. Uh, I grew up in this like. It's so funny. I think it's one of the oldest houses in Tel Aviv. This was not a particularly like sexy place to grow up, right? It, uh, it was the Yemenite quarter of, um, of Tel Aviv, and it was right by the Carmel Market. So my dad would wake me up at like 6 a.m., 6.30, uh, send me to the market. I'd put on like shorts and flip-flops, and I'd, you know, it was probably like six or seven or something like that. Uh, and I would go and negotiate for pita and like some vegetables and we'd have 
breakfast and then he'd have his stuff and like, you know, I'd go around with him really confused and very bored. Uh, it, you know, people think, oh, you went away for the summer. How sexy. It, like <laughs> no air conditioning, one fan between me and my brother in a room uh, on some like foam mattress. It was, you know, my, my father uh, grew up incredibly poor. He was one of, I think, 11 kids. He was born in that house, in the room that I used to sleep in. And uh, he managed to kind of like work his way out. And uh, we came to the U.S. and that's where we grew up. Um, and then, yeah, I grew up, I went to grade school, high school, everything, even college in New York. So like, I'm, I'm like a New Yorker, uh, but it's kind of funny, especially uh, people don't realize this by looking at me, but I'm actually mixed race. So I'm, my grandfather's from Yemen. Um, my grandmother's, uh, it's a little unclear. She's either North African or Turkish. And then the other half of my family is Dutch. Uh, so it was a, a very different childhood. My grandparents were not interested in my mom marrying my dad. Uh, like you know very proper dutch family and he's right. like some rebel so. <laughs> yeah i uh love new york anytime i can get there my my wife did her her master's work was at uh nyu so before we had kids and we'd go to new york one of the things i loved was uh you know, just her taking me like talking about curation here's here's a record store i know you would like here's a restaurant i know you would like mm. right but a record was, store wow uh, that's, that's, how long, ourselves, that's, eh? that's how long we've been together yeah <laughs> but uh yeah love love when i get to visit um want to uh ask you uh i'll, I'll throw out a directional choice for you uh either talking about the when you're writing and doing your research if you get if you get stuck how do you how do you get on uh, if you get stuck? How do you get unstuck? Or one of the things I want to get to too is you had a fantastic story about Daryl Davis uh, oh, in the yeah. book. Either either of those sound more interesting to to discuss right now. Uh, so I think the unstuck stuff is is interesting to me, uh, but we can probably cover both. The you know my father is a painter and sculptor, and his policy was that his job was to paint, um, no excuses. Uh, so he would get a piece of paper and some ink or watercolors, gouache, whatever it was. Sometimes it was a canvas and he would start painting and just produce. And sometimes dribble would come out that was terrible, but sometimes it would inspire him. And, uh, I think I kind of fit more into that camp, which is I, I block off time. It's my job to get the writing done. And you are probably a more talented writer than I am, but I'm, you're not going to outwork me, right? You, as far as like, it's my job to produce and I'm going to produce, I do it. And when you look at the research on the great masters in music, for example, you can literally chart the number of pieces they composed versus the number of hits, and you see almost a perfect correlation. And so my hunch is that some, some of the greats like Michael Jackson probably have 
more on the cutting room floor than any of us will ever know. Um, and I think that that's probably true for photographers and writers and so on. So I have, I wrote a, I don't know, 70,000 word book, give or take. I think we ended up cutting 20 to 30,000 words. That means I wrote almost an extra half book right. that got thrown away. But frankly, that's fine with me because my objective, I'm not emotionally, I'm, I know this isn't true for most artists, but I'm not emotionally attached to specific stories. There are stories I loved that we cut, but that's not the point. The point is for the reader to get value and for it to trigger a specific response. And so, great, I'll cut it and, you know, maybe I'll give it away later or something. I don't even know what. Or maybe it'll just never see the light of day. So I fit into the camp of you just write uh, or you research. I spent so much time looking for stories. I would call people. I'd say, I need a story about an incredible woman, an incredible woman who brought people together. And I'd call up all these women I know that run organizations for women. And I'd say, any ideas, bring them to me. I welcome anything you have. And I'd interview people and I'd go and search. And one of the things I'm really proud of is the stories in this book, you can't find almost any of them in any of the other pop science books. And that's rare because so many stories get recycled. Right. Right. And I wanted, I felt that the reader deserved something original and new and novel presented in an unexpected way. And, uh, and I will tell you, it was hard. I, the first chapter was already written. I told the story of, a um, somebody in Hollywood and I paired it with the story of two black women who created a walking club called Girl Trek, which is this amazing organization. Uh, I was really proud of it. I found female-centric stories that demonstrated uh, the values of the book. And then I, I, um, I got a call from one of the the people that was covered in it. And they said, you know, there's kind of like an issue slightly with the story for accuracy. I don't know if it'll work out the way you want it to. And I said, no problem. I had to lose the story. And I was like, oh my God, how, what, what am I going to find uh, to replace it? And it, it's like a puzzle. The moment that you lose one, one theme, everything begins to unravel. I spent weeks trying to, to replace it. And eventually I just had to accept that it's not going to be replaced. I have to start from scratch. And so I end up finding this story about Jean Nightage, who's the founder of Weight Watchers and how she was able to create a safe space for women for the first time to discuss their insecurities. Right? Regardless of what you think about body image and all that, what she did was incredible. She, for the first time, created a place where people didn't have to feel shame with their insecurities. And 
in an era where she still couldn't even have a credit card under her own name. It was <laughs> Miss Marty Nightage. Uh, she created an international organization that many would argue helped millions of people. Um, and so I needed to find a completely different story. It couldn't be about a group of women walking now because that's also a health issue. I had to go back and I searched for story after story. And eventually I uh, found the story of Frederick Bailey, uh, which is a famous story. It's uh, eventually changed his name to Frederick Douglass. And, uh, but the fact is that it hadn't been told in a while. And, uh, and what's interesting is without making any comparison between the two, uh, because, you know, social equality and the end of slavery is a very different, very public social issue versus, you know, people's insecurities, which is a very personal and private issue. Uh, it turns out that they used the same strategy, which was bringing people together. And, um, and it was one, really hard to find stories that matched up. And two, I was really proud that I could share the stories of two incredible human beings and the impact that they made because of their ability to gather people. And so um, I will tell you, I'm very lucky for synthesized happiness because I was pretty miserable trying to track down those stories, but luckily I remember it very positively. Oh, that's, that, that's great. And I, uh, I did appreciate in the, in the book, how you have those kind of weaving back and forth to, to help the, the reader synthesize and see that. So, the the I found the Daryl Davis story incredibly moving and uh, he's wild, isn't he? I mean, yeah. this is like what a <laughs> what a human being! Holy cow! Yeah, so I uh, I ended up being introduced to him by a researcher, um, and I heard a description of the guy, and I was like, "Am I getting this right?" Because it it seemed really surprising, and he's like, "No, no, that's that's really what he did." So as the story was explained to me by Daryl, uh, he grew up with no concept of race, really, because he was family was in the Foreign Service and growing up, like everybody was different, right? And he was in international schools his entire life. And when he came to the U.S., he joined the Cub Scouts, went to a parade with them, and kids started throwing bottles and rocks at him. And he got injured. And when he saw his parents later that day, they explained racism to him. And he didn't believe them. Until a few weeks later, there was the assassination of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, he saw the rioting. And he finally realized that it was you know, an issue. And that uh, he didn't understand how somebody could hate him without knowing him. Uh, and he ends up getting a degree in, in music uh, and becoming a boogie and blues and rock musician. And uh, he finds a role in a kind of country band because uh, touring with them. And he's the only black member of the band. And one day they're at a place called the Silver Dollar something or other in Maryland. And he gets off stage. He's the only black guy in the entire, entire place. and. Uh, some random guy throws his arm around him and goes, man, I have never met a black man who could play like Jerry Lee Lewis. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? Jerry Lee learned to play music from black people. Uh, and the guy didn't really believe him, but he's like, come have a drink with me. And they're sharing a drink and they toast. And the gentleman says, I have never had a drink with a black man before. Daryl's like, how is that even possible? And the guy just looks down and he has a friend next to him and the friend nudges him like being like, go ahead, tell him. And uh, he goes, that's because I'm a member of the clan. And Daryl starts cracking up thinking the guy's kidding because he had just treated him to a drink and put his arm around him. And the guy pulls out a card and passes it to Daryl and he sees like the clan logo on it. And he's a card carrying member. And it sobered him right up. Not that he was drinking, but right, right. This made him realize what was going on. And uh, and they kept chatting. And he said, "Hey, I'd like to see you perform again. Here's my number." You know, he wanted to see the guy, the black man that could play like Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, so Daryl, every time he was in town, he would call the guy up, and he would bring fellow clansmen and clanswomen to see this guy play. And, Eventually, he realized that he could actually have an answer to his question of how people could hate him without knowing him. And that is, he could actually just sit down with senior people in the clan and, and ask them. And so he asked this friend of his to introduce him to the Maryland's Grand Dragon, which is like a, the head of the state for this group of the clan, right? There are different factions and all that. And uh, he agreed and made the introduction. and. Uh, but it never occurred to the Grand Dragon that Daryl was black because <laughs> the, the scenario was so strange. So they go in and meets him at a hotel and he's there with like his bodyguard called the Grand Nighthawk and Daryl puts out his hand and I guess out of shock, they shake his hand and they sit down and Daryl turns on a tape recorder and uh, starts asking questions and uh and the clan member says, yes, you know, uh, it's a sin, so on and so forth. The Bible said so, and he pulls out a Bible. And all he has in there is like some drinks that are on ice, the Bible, and a tape recorder, and, uh, and a ton of bravery. And uh, every so often they would hear like a little weird sound, but they thought nothing of it uh, throughout this entire interview. And then suddenly they heard like a big, like, banging movement movement and daryl jumps across the table and like grabs the guy thinking that he had the clansman had done something to try to hurt daryl uh the clansman thought that daryl had done something the guy the private guard was like grabbing for his gun to potentially shoot daryl and then they realized that it was just the ice that had melted causing the cans to fall uh in the container and uh, they almost destroyed each other, right? Like either Daryl almost got shot, Daryl could have beaten the, the guys up, all because of like this misunderstanding. And they just started laughing. Uh, and Daryl decided that what he's going to do is travel around the country and continue to interview Klansmen. Uh, and what was crazy is that he would sit down with them and look for multiple interviews. So even after somebody was arrested and sent to jail after trying to destroy a synagogue uh, through bombing it, he would go and sit down with them and talk to them. And they would say things like, well, everybody knows that uh, 
black people have a gene that uh, causes them to be violent. And he's like, well, and Daryl would respond, well, I've never acted a, committed an act of violence in my life. And the Klan member would say, that's just because it's inert. It's not activated yet. And so Daryl would respond with things like, well, everybody knows that all white men are serial killers. And the guy would say, what are you talking about? I'm not a serial killer. And he's like, well, it's just inert. But think, name one black serial killer. You won't find him. Every serial killer, I can name 10 of them. They're all white. And so conversation after conversation, uh, Daryl would break down their, their thinking. And what was amazing is I think by the end, over 200 people had left the Klan and 80-something of them gave, them gave him their robes. And the wildest thing is that after going to jail for bombing the synagogue or attempted bombing, he then ended up again in an, this guy, uh, is the, I think the Grand Dragon of Maryland or something like that, uh, went to jail again for attempted murder of two black teens with a shotgun or something. And, uh, but Daryl never gave up on the guy. And what ended up happening was that they had become friends and that so didn't align with the clan's values that the man left the clan and not only gave him his robes, but what the man did before that was that he was a Maryland police officer. And he gave him his old uniform because the amount of damage that it, this, realize this wasn't an undercover cop in the clan. It was an undercover Klansman in the Maryland police department. Right. And that's what's incredible is the amount of good that Daryl has done out of a well-placed invitation. And listen, I do not recommend people try this, right? right. Daryl is brave and has really developed a skill set um, that I don't have. Uh, I, this is like, do not try this at home, kids, right? Like, uh, but it's, it's pretty incredible that... Uh, he was really able to get people to connect, build trust, and develop a new sense of belonging so that they didn't need uh, a rhetoric of hate. Yeah, it was such a powerful story, and I really appreciate you sharing that with, with everyone. Before we go, if you don't mind, I usually try to check in with guests about the notion of advice, either good advice we've received from a mentor or mm -hmm. stealing from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. He says, when we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self. But mm. any ad advice that you would have for, for listeners? And, and, and I know one I'll say is, is read the book, right? There's a lot of good, good <laughs> advice in the book. And, you. and, and your grandmother's right. But in your life, what's some good advice that you've, you've received? Um, I'll, can I give you some bad advice that I've received? <laughs> sure. Uh, some bad advice I've received is follow your passion. I absolutely, frankly, despise this advice. Uh, the reason I despise it is twofold. One is when I was 20, I had no clue what my passion was. Like, what kind of advice is that? That's like telling me, marry the person I'd love right now. Who do I love at 20, right? Like, uh, the probability that I'll hit that right is zero, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Some people meet in high school and stay in love forever. But like, 
that's the, an anomaly. Uh, it is terrible advice. Do you know who tells you to go follow your passion? It's the person who worked coding night after night uh, and became a tech billionaire and now gets to do whatever the heck they want with their time and money. The, the average human being, if they were to follow their passion, they'd end up broke, disappointed, and hating their passion. Right? The, just because, let's say, I like music does not mean I should be a musician. Just because I like writing does not mean I should be a professional author. And just because I like teaching doesn't mean I should give up my career as a, I don't know, ad salesperson for whatever to go be a fifth grade teacher, right? There's a big difference between what I enjoy and how I want to earn my living. And so I frankly hate most of this like junky kind of millennial-ish ethos uh, that I grew up around. Um, because none of it is based on how human beings actually behave. And a lot of it is really junky advice. Anytime you hear somebody say, wow, isn't that always the case? The answer is no. Anytime uh, you hear, do you know it always works? The answer is no, it doesn't always work, right? Like most advice is completely not reproducible. And here's the flip side of it. Nobody's going to follow my advice anyway. So it really doesn't matter. The one thing I will say is that if there are people in your life that you value, let them know that. This isn't some advice. It's like just, it's not going to hurt you to tell people that you care about them and that you appreciate them. And like, it's important to let people know that. And that's not advice because I know you're not going to follow advice anyway. <laughs> it's just an interesting idea that you might like. And if you do something with it, great. Oh, John, thank you so much for, for taking the time and uh, sharing your, your wisdom with us. I said, I really, I really did appreciate the, the book. So I'm, I'm wishing you great success on its thank you. launch. And as long as all of your listeners listen to my mom, uh, <laughs> then I should do well. Right. right. Buy three copies, everybody. And for those of you who buy 12, my mom will be very happy with you and would, here's a bonus. She'll probably be willing to get on, the, on Zoom with you and talk to you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there's plenty of incentive right there. But John, thanks so much. Have a fantastic day. And thanks again for, for making the thanks time. Thanks for having really me. This is great.